eventually the rest of the creation is going to be like, you know what? I don't know if we need them. <laughs> People say, oh, like it's about saving the earth. And I'm like, actually, the earth's going to be all good. The question is whether or not we will continue to exist. It's Maria from Cooler Earth, and this is Now What, a special season of our podcast where I'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who are doing the work and being very intentional about how they find new and engaging ways to communicate the challenges we currently face and just as importantly, the opportunities, ways forward and reasons for hope. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Reverend Mariama White-Hammond. She's the pastor of New Roots AME Church in Boston and is also a community organizer and climate and social justice advocate. Some of her distinctions include being a faith fellow with the Green Justice Coalition, being the former executive director of Project Hip Hop, and most recently being named by Grist as one of their 50 changemakers in 2019. Reverend Mariama, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. No, no problem. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, so my name is Reverend Mariama White Hammond. I um, am the pastor of New Roots AME Church, and we are a relatively young congregation started in October of 2018. And I also serve as a fellow with the Green Justice Coalition, which is a coalition of um, organizations that primarily serve um, and organize low-income communities and, or, and communities of color. Um, and so those are sort of my two official roles. And then I do a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> but um, you know, the core of my work is really um, mobilizing people around the need for a transition from the world as we currently are living to one that is sustainable for us and future generations. I'm curious to know, what led you to become a reverend? Um, so that actually is funny because um, my both my parents are ministers, my grandfather, my uncle, my godparents. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, there was definitely a lot of ministry. My parents started a church in our dining room that's now, you know, pretty, you know, large and well-known church. And um, so because of what I knew about ministry, um, I was like, oh yeah, I'm not, definitely not going into that. <laughs> it was, if you had met my 16-year-old self, I would have told you, my parents are both doctors and ministers. And oh, wow. I was very clear that I was not going to be a doctor or a minister. I was 50% right uh, on that one. But um you know, I started do, I was an activist and that's a lot of what I did. I've been doing organizing, particularly with young people, but, um, lots of different groups and in my community for ever since I can remember, I've cared about issues and, and been active on them. And I thought that that's, you know, that was just the work I was going to do. Um, and I think, you know, as I was running a youth program, I started working with folks and coming up against very real life situations. Um, Many of my young people ended up, unfortunately, in uh, supervision of the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, I had young people who were killed um, by gun violence. And and, uh, um, and so the very reality of working in the communities that I was working in meant that I had to deal with spiritual issues, with people's life situations that are not always reducible to a campaign um, or an organizing slogan. And so 
my desire to do organizing, my love for art led me to being engaged in this organization, Project Hip Hop. And being with people and knowing people led me into doing ministry. Now, at the time, I probably wouldn't have said that that's what I was doing. You know, I was like, I'm just serving my young people. But I I was doing ministry work. And so at some point, somebody said to me, like, you're so against being a minister, but like, don't you kind of do <laughs> a lot of spiritual work? And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I kind of do. So you went from community organizing and activism to understanding that in a way you were sort of already working through issues of faith and spirituality. But then you also went on to focus directly on climate change and issues around climate and environmental justice. How and why did you make that jump and make climate change a key part of your mission and message? My real breakup call was in, in uh, 2005 and 2006, um, post-Katrina. Um, I started realizing that the crisis was not merely a scientific thing. Science tells us what is happening. Science tells us why it's happening, but science can't explain why we have become so addicted to the things that we have become addicted to, um, why it's so hard for us to take courageous action, um, how we've lost touch with our core responsibility to make sure that the next generation has what they need. Those are spiritual questions. Um, and so, I think I, I did my organizing from a social justice perspective and found myself doing more ministry. Uh, and then I looked at this crisis as sort of a huge, um, massive human challenge to tackle that I think at the end of the day, I came to realize if we don't have a spiritual shift, there's probably no chance we'll take the kind of radical action that we need. So that was my path. It was a little circuitous. Uh, I probably would not have expected if you, I definitely know if you had talked to my 16 year old self, even my 20 year old self, I would never have guessed this is where I would be. But I think um, this is exactly where I'm called to be. Right. And touching on something you just said, I think, I think it's important because so many people see climate change and they do think it's this scientific thing, right? That lives in reports that are put out by scientists who are working in labs. But at the end of the day, it's a human question, right? It's about humans and how we organize and how we will deal with this. Um, how do you think you have made the links between social justice issues and those issues of environmental justice and the climate crisis? Well, I mean, I think that um, once you think about how massive it, of a shift we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it just seems so obvious. I think what was the reason Hurricane Katrina was a real shifting point is for me up until that point, I understood climate change, but it, it, yeah, it was something in a report. It was a problem. It was an issue that needed to be addressed. When I, spent time on the Gulf Coast, I saw the reality of the suffering that people were experiencing. And for the first time, it became very clear to me that if this was just the tip of the iceberg, if the kinds of things I saw after Hurricane Katrina were going to be life as usual, <laughs> we were talking about a, a, a level of suffering that even I couldn't imagine. Um, I started connecting with friends. I had sp I spent some time in Brazil um, 
And I started looking at how many of the world's major cities are, are right on the water. I um, started talking to friends of mine. I had had a big interest in agriculture at once at one point, and people were talking about drought and what drought was doing around the world. And, and so, you know, when you hear like, you know, two degrees Celsius, like that just sounds like something that you learned in, in, you know, in, in your science class, or you, you know, you know how to measure it. But once you start seeing the effects in real people's lives, um, and the, the idea that that's going to get bigger, it sort of almost is overwhelming. I mean, to the point that I think it leads many of us who know and care about this issue to a kind of grief that can be, um, it can almost be paralyzing. Yeah. Um, once you take it all in, the immensity of it, 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 it can be like, do we have any chance of addressing that? And, and so again, you know, for me, from a, a spiritual perspective, um, how do you face that? How do you face something that daunting and come out on the other side? That is one of the biggest challenges of this work because the impacts and the scale of the problem is so massive. It sometimes feels almost pointless, right? Why would we burden ourselves with this if we know how bad things are? How do you face that question and remain hopeful? One of the things I've, I've sort of talked about and some writing and thinking is just, um, I have thought back to my ancestors and what it would have meant for them to be on slave ships, saying goodbye to the community that they knew, the continent that they had grown up in, where all their family was, being taken to some other place by people speaking a language that they generally couldn't understand, who were like beating them and shackling them. Like, what must it have been like to, to not even actually be able to imagine how different your life would be? And I recognize that they survived that and they survived that in part because they imagined that I would exist. They didn't know my name. They did not know what I would look like, but they believed that there would be a future generation, a descendant, and they continued to fight and struggle and live so that I could have the ability to be in the place that I am right now. I have more resources, more um, opportunities than they could have even imagined. And so I believe that kind of hope, that kind of perseverance is built into my DNA. Um, It's part of who I am. It's part of what motivates my spirit. And so I have to do the same thing. I have to look at this crazy, overwhelming situation and decide that I am going to survive and I am going to fight and I am going to imagine a better world for the generations that come after me. Um, So yeah, I I am very clear about how overwhelming it is, how, um, why people want to look away from the science, because if you really take it in, (laughs) it's like immense. Yeah. And I also turn to the spirit of, of my ancestors, to my faith tradition, to my belief um, that I, I just, it's just not in me to give up. I can't. 
This is incredibly powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. You speak on the perseverance and strength of your ancestors in facing what could seem as insurmountable suffering uh, based purely on the belief of a better future. This type of message is really lacking in these conversations. Human beings, I think, have a very short memories um, and at times myopic views of the future. But really, if we think about the incredible accomplishments of humankind, it serves as a source of hope in what we can still achieve. Everything from the abolishment of slavery to civil rights movement, the anti-apartheid movement, the fight for equity of women, and the technologies and sciences that have enabled us to eradicate disease and lift millions of people out of poverty around the world. Um, that part of the human story is one that we don't pay enough attention to, I think. And it's so necessary in allowing us to keep the bigger picture in mind. I'm also fascinated about the way you embed spirituality and faith into this conversation as a vehicle to communicate the issues surrounding climate change, but also a way to engage people who might not otherwise be engaging with these issues. Why do you think it's important to do so and how has it been effective? Yeah, so, I mean, I think um, one of the things that's comforting to me, again, I told the story of sort of my ancestors, um, but there's also the stories um, in the Bible that, you know, for me, I, I um, study particularly Hebrew scriptures, the story of the Israelites, the story of these like small people who always found themselves caught in between powerful nations and, and you know, this part of the world, the ancient Near East, we now call, you know, Israel and Palestine and, and the Middle East. This part of the world has been struggling <laughs> with with human tensions and trauma and conflicts um, for thousands of years, right? Um, and so I, I think the scriptures give us really um, important lessons about how people deal with this. Um, I, I have preached often from the, the book of Exodus and this idea of like the children of Israel being in slavery and um, this point at which to, to bring about their liberation, God brings, um, these plagues, these, these, um, manifestations in, in nature of the problematic nature of that, of that, um, the Egyptian order at that time. And so, um, I think that I turn a lot of those to the scripture because I think it tells me about times before this, where people have felt the same level of, of despair, of, um, of challenges that are in front of them and have, have faced those things. It also talks to us about some of the really, dang the dangers of addiction, of pride, of, right. of choosing comfort over um, what is right. And the lengths we have gone to, um, to you know, have material wealth at the expense of our morals, at the expense of like the larger needs of a common good and of society. So, so I think, you know, there is both something challenging and comforting to know that what we're dealing with is something that human beings have been dealing with for a very long time. Right. And I, I do focus most of our, my work from the human perspective, because I think that we are the greatest creators of climate change and, um, 
you know, we will be deeply affected and probably most of us will be most deeply motivated by saving um, other humans. But I also do think it's important, and I find this, you know, part of scripture too, to recognize that it's not actually all about us. You know, one of the things I teach in my congregation is, you know, the creation story has seven days and humans are only one of them. (laughs) And God says that the oceans are good, that the stars that the animals that like all of this stuff is good. And we're the last, you know, we're day, day six before God rests. Right. And somehow we've gotten confused to believe that it's all about us. All the rest of it is there just to please us. And the reality is that's not what the scripture says. It doesn't say all this was like kind of good. This was sort of so, so, and humans were amazing. And that's the way we're living. Um, So I think a lot of it is also about pushing us to a kind of humility and a focus on a kind of balance um, with all of the parts of the creation. Uh, Because if we don't find that balance, um, if we let it continue to get completely out of whack, as we have, eventually the rest of the creation is going to be like, you know what? I don't know if we need them. People say, oh, like it's about saving the earth. And I'm like, actually, the earth's going to be all good. There will be massive effects on other living species, fish and and insects and birds. They're all going to be affected. But the reality is the earth will keep on going and some of those things are going to rebound. The question is whether or not we will continue to exist. And right now, if you ask whether or not we deserve to exist, in comparison with all the other creatures who seem to be able to keep themselves in check. And we're the only ones that are not able to do that. <laughs> um, you know, there's, it's questionable whether or not we deserve to have a place. Right. And so, you know, really also um, stretching ourselves to yes, think about our, our human siblings and the members of the human race. Cause we have not done a really good job of holding each other and, and, in high regard and loving each other. But we also need to recognize that there's a whole bunch of other living beings and and pieces and materials that are part of this creation that are not us. And they are not the problem. We are the problem. That notion of humility is something that has come up through these conversations I've been having, right? And it's the idea that we need to be introspective right now and look at ourselves and really understand that as you say it's not it's not really all about us um but it is the survival of the human species as we know it um that is at stake and that brings me to another question i wanted to ask you around the climate movement and it's a movement that has for a long time been predominantly exclusionary both in terms of race and wealth um, of the people that have been either allowed or involved um, in the movement why why is that so problematic and how how have you been working to change that yeah yeah so i think um you know the history of the climate movement you know so it starts really from the conservationist movement in many ways, um, at least in this country. Um, I think that when you go and see people from other parts of the world, there's a very different um, trajectory. And I think that that's worth seeing because it, I think it helps us to see what is possible. But, but in this, in this movement, you have, uh, you know, this 
our climate work really descends from the traditional environmental movement, which really descends from the conservationist movement. And, and I want to just be clear, I believe in conservation and I believe in protecting the wildness of land, particularly for the benefit of the other species that are on this planet. But I also think it's worth pointing out that the conservationist movement comes out of a predominantly white movement that wants to protect certain parts of the land while leaving the rest of it to be treated in ways that are highly problematic. Right. Um, and that many of those folks were descendants of this original crop of people that come here when indigenous people were living in a very different kind of harmony with the land. Um, indigenous traditions that say, actually, we don't have the right to just treat the land however we want to. Indigenous traditions that saw relationships between humans and and other species, right? So so you have these systems, and I'm not trying to say everything was perfect. Indigenous folks in, in this country and other parts of the world fought with each other and had conflicts. I'm not, you know, I don't want to play into the notion that they're just like these beautifully amazing angelic people, because that also I think is problematic. But the reality is that they did have an ethos around the land that was very different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And and so I I think what is challenging me about the conservation movement and, and, and the environmental movement is this effort by some to protect all this stuff without being honest about the fact that they have actively participated in a way of being and thinking that led to this. How do you think we can begin to address those problems and become more inclusive in the movement? Partly because, as you say, the indigenous knowledge of the land and beliefs around respecting it are or at least should be, what informs our thinking moving forward. Part of the solution to this is to begin to re- to revive and reconnect with traditions that have a very, very different relationship with the land. And that is not just for white folks. That That is also, you know, as an African-American, I know of my family's history around land and connection to the land, but I also have grown up, grown up in the city, and I um, am very much an American like everyone else. <laughs> Um, and so, um, there is both the tradition that I can turn to and also the reality that I have bought into this way of being also, um, I think bringing those voices in, um, voices of, of people of color, voices of indigenous people, voices of women, voices of young people who have also, you know, not always been at the center, um, really helps us to connect with ways of being that are different than the one Um, that led us to this crisis. But the other piece of it is, is that the world is is getting browner and browner. And if we have an environmental movement that is led exclusively or predominantly by white folks and white ways of thinking and being in the world, we also will have the challenge of making it something that not enough people feel connected to. Um, And so uh, it's both a justice issue of, restoring some of the balance that was lost in, in, in the genocide against indigenous people, in the slavery of African-American people, in the exploitation of Asian workers, in the um, appropriation of Latino and Mexi- particularly Mexican lands. Like, those things need to be fixed. They are also part of the story of how we got out of balance, how we lost a sense of humility and relationship and connection with the land. But also, if we are going to move um, policies and um, create a movement that has any chance of winning, we actually need every single 
person at the table. We don't need anyone to think that this is a movement that they will not be welcomed where there is not space for them. Um, and some of that also means thinking not exclusively about parts per million in the atmosphere, but really thinking about what is the full crisis that we are in, in, in terms of some people not being able to feed themselves in a world where we have more than enough food. What is the full crisis that we're in? Not educating all of our young people so that might be the source of our solutions are not giving, getting the resources that they need to come up with the powerful ideas, technologies, organizing approaches that we need to save ourselves. So we need all hands on deck if we want to have any chance of survival. And we've created a society in, in which some people are completely marginalized. That has got to change or we won't survive. Um, so I think there's, there's multiple, both sort of moral and practical reasons for engaging other communities that have been pushed out of that movement. And so I do that a lot um, just by mobilizing the people that I know, that I love, that I'm in relationship with. And because and, uh, I'm like, I don't want to see anybody drown. <laughs> I don't want to see um, anybody starve because there's not enough food. So how do I begin to mobilize other communities that have not been at the table? It has been an exclusionary movement, but it's also been a bit myopic in the sense that when we think about solving climate change, it's often been sold to us that it's a, it's a history of tough choices, right? So we can either save the planet or address social equity. We can either reduce parts per million in the atmosphere or talk about race and racism in this country and how to solve it. But the truth is the, there's a lot of synergy between all of these problems and addressing them is going to require thinking that is comprehensive about all of them. How, how do you think about the ways in which all of these issues play into each other and can actually further um, one another in addressing them? Yeah, so I mean, I think the reality is our whole system is built on like a carbon economy. Right. <laughs> Everything. Like, so rethinking this is about like really rethinking the way we live on, on some fundamental levels. Like the idea that we're not going to just hop in our cars, the idea that we're not going to just heat our homes, you know, by turning up the thermostat with, you know, these pipes that are pumped. I mean, the transition that is required is massive. But for me, that's actually kind of exciting. Like we have an opportunity to rethink on some deep fundamental levels. There's a lot of things about our world that if you ask people, they'd say, yeah, that's too bad. Like it's not a good thing, but you know, that's the way it right. is. If we have to rethink the way it is, this is an amazing opportunity to rethink at a very, very, deep level. Um, so I think the fact that the transition required is so big um, actually is what makes me excited because, you know, there are some communities that have not been doing well already. There are many places where people did not have what they needed to survive already. There are many communities that have been wiped out by, by um, disease before because we didn't put the systems in place to support them. Right. So I think um, now we have an opportunity to figure out how to get some of these things right. And they're deeply connected. You know, I, I was just watching a movie where there's <laughs> um, 
this plague that gets to the United States and it takes over. And then all the rest of these countries are like, oh my goodness, what if, you know, all of these sick people in the United States come to our countries? And so they literally, you know, it's a television show, they drop a nuclear bomb on the United States, right? Oh my And that's like mind blowing. Like we could never imagine because that's the kind of stuff the United States will do <laughs> to other places, but not the kind of stuff that happens here. But the reality is, I, I think, um, as, as Dr. King and many people have said, we are connected. We've just chosen not to see it. We've chosen to try to create ways to insulate ourselves from other people. And the climate crisis is putting us all in one boat. Um, and we need to have some deep negotiations about where resources we're gonna, are going to go, how we make sure everyone has what they need. And we're all going to have to shift. I don't think most of us will be required to make sacrifices that are affecting of the things we actually need to live. The things we actually need to live, just in case we don't remember, is like food, water, shelter, and love. That's it, right? Um, air, air, sorry, <laughs> we need to be able to breathe. Um, and everything else should be on the table to make sure that all of us gets what we need. So I think the opportunity to reimagine is very exciting. You put that beautifully. I think you're absolutely right in framing this issue on how we'll need to rethink a distribution of resources. But how do you think we can begin to do that on the ground and in practical ways? I get it. It's also overwhelming. Like, how do we really rethink systems? Um, and that's why I think one of the things that we need to do more in the climate movement that we haven't been doing is start experimenting and trying new ways of organizing ourselves. What are new ways of housing ourselves? What are new ways of dealing with childcare, for instance? I don't, can't tell you how many of my friends struggle with finding quality childcare, being parents on the, the level that they want to. Um, maybe we can allow people to be home more, which means fewer hours in their car and more hours with their kids. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that I think we have to rethink in order to survive that also allow us to dig deep and think about how we can actually make better quality of life for every single one of us. Um, how we can restore some systems of community and connection that we've allowed to get broken as we pursued consumption. Um, so, you know, I see these issues as all connected. People go, you know, you work on immigration and you work on like racial justice and climate. And I'm like, for me, I'm actually working on the same right. thing. <laughs> How do we as humans transition to the kind of world um, that we don't sacrifice anybody and we avert this ecological crisis that we're facing? I'm pretty clear we can do both things at the same time. I actually am not sure it can be done any other way. Right. And finally, um, what makes you hopeful about the future? Um, so I am particularly hopeful because of the work that young people are doing. Um, I, I see them speaking out. I was at the climate strikes um, on last Friday. Um, I am thankful for the engagement of young people to call for a little bit of sanity in the world um, and to call us to do what is right. So 
um, I think that's what's giving me real hope. It is incredible how young people are mobilizing themselves around around issues all across the board, right? From climate to gun violence, it's it's definitely very inspiring. Well, I, I I'm putting a lot of my eggs in their <laughs> basket and and believing um, that they can get us motivated to act on the level that's required, and and that's 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 the big challenge, not just to do something, but to choose a response that matches uh, the urgency of the problem. Um, and, you know, I'm not 100% sure whether we'll do it or not. But as I you know, said earlier, there's, for me, giving up is absolutely not an option. It is what I owe to the people that came before me. It is what I will owe to the generations that come um, after. So um, I keep doing what I, I, I'm called to do. And I'm thankful to be able to work with um, people who have been doing this work for years and people who are getting involved right now for the first time, which is exactly what we need. We need tons of people who've done maybe nothing up to this point, who feel like they don't know a lot or, they, or they're like, what can I add? Everybody has something to add. Um, and so I'm excited to see lots of new people, lots of new voices and new ideas um, join in this effort to save ourselves. Reverend, I could speak to you for hours. You are extraordinary and you're an extraordinary force in this movement. And thank you so much. I'm very grateful for your time. Thank you and blessings to you. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to tune in next week for our second episode. If you found this conversation valuable, please share it with friends and colleagues and give us a rating wherever you're listening. See you next week.